All right, pre-K through first graders, if you guys want to take off toward, uh, toward Elevate. Parents, if this is the first time that your pre-K through first grader would uh, be going to Elevate, if you could either go with them, just so we'll be able to make a connection with you, or send that Connect card that's in the back of the See back, write your name on that, and send that so we'll have, have a connection with you. But they have a great time, as attested by all the other people that sneak out during this time. So I'm getting used to that reality. That's all right. Everyone else, uh, open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in your Bible. If you have access to God's Word on your phone or uh, iPad, we always want you to be able to access it on there as well. If you're opening a hard copy of the Bible, uh, 1 Thessalonians is going to be toward the end in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters, and we've made a commitment here at Emmaus that we're going to study this particular book of the Bible. We began early January, and we're going to continue right up through Easter. We'll, we will finish 1 Thessalonians on Easter Sunday, which comes up a little bit earlier this year just because of the way the calendar falls and so we're we're aiming to finish first Thessalonians with Easter and then move into uh, some new some new material after that so if you receive that bulletin that program as you came in if you want to turn that over on the back there are some notes that you can use to follow along if you would like to during our time of Bible study this morning we'd want you to be able to to access that here in just a moment, we're going to read the passage for this morning, and then I want us, after that, to take a few minutes uh, for some prayer and silence. Weeks go fast. There's a lot of things that go on in life. Many of you are going to leave here, and you're going to enter immediately back into a very busy schedule and a lot of things going on. And so as we gather together in church, in a, in a worship service, as the church we want to be careful we're not just going through the motions or just moving fast through things like life happens to us all the time. And so we haven't had a chance yet in the service this morning just to pray and slow down. And I want us to make sure that we don't miss that and miss the importance of that in the midst of busy lives and a lot of things going on. So what I'd like us to do is we're going to read the passage of Scripture and then we're just going to have a little bit of a guided prayer time for us to be able to focus our hearts and minds on, on the things of the Lord. The passage this morning is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 7, and then we're going to read into chapter 3. I said 7, starting in verse 17, and we're going to read into chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians two seventeen says... But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And then it moves into chapter 3. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. 
For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I can endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together like this. God, we never want to be guilty of taking this lightly. Father, I pray that this morning, For those who are gathered here who have gone through all kinds of different experiences this last week, some people have had very stressful, difficult weeks. Some people maybe have had very rewarding, exciting weeks. Whatever the case, God, we are so prone to wander away from you, to get distracted by other things. And God, we need to be reminded of your goodness and of your work in our lives. God, remind us that we don't come together to be entertained. We don't come together to fulfill some sort of obligation to make you love us more. God, we come here because we love you. And we know that you have first loved us. God, if there are people here this morning who are battling through very difficult things and maybe they don't feel particularly loved, Right now, God, would you remind them of your love? Would you remind them of your strength and your mercy? God, I pray that you would continue to focus our hearts and minds on you. We don't want one hour of a spiritual life and then 167 to live on our own. God, we need you every moment of every day. So, Father, remind us of that. Help us to see more clearly what that looks like as we continue ahead as a church family. God, thank you for these people who are gathered here. God, I love them. God, I pray that your spirit would work in them and through them. And we thank you for the power of your word as we come together to study that and to submit our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever started something or, or worked on something and then left it for a while only to have a chance to go back and figure out, did that actually work? Did what I did end up lasting? Did it stick? Well, here's my story related to that. There's probably several stories, but we moved, we being my wife Amanda and I, moved to New Orleans in early 2005 to go to seminary. Love New Orleans, still love New Orleans to this day. We had a great experience there, fell in love with the people in the city. But if you moved to New Orleans in early 2005, it meant that about eight months, nine months later, 
Hurricane Katrina uh, was coming. And so one night, playing volleyball with some friends, life's good, wake up the next morning, and they're on the news telling us, you've got to get out of town, you've got to leave as quickly as you can. And so we did what any, you know, clear-thinking, newly married Oklahoma couple living on the Gulf Coast would do. We took our things and piled them on top of the table and piled them on top of the bed and thought, you know, no big deal, we'll be back in a few days, everything will be, be good and won't get wet. And then as I was leaving, I had this brilliant idea. I thought, I will duct tape around the bottom part of the door so that the water won't come through the door and won't get into our apartment. So I spent all this time carefully duct taping the bottom of the front door of our apartment so that the water won't get in there. We leave, we evacuate to Texas to family's house, and we're watching uh, on Monday evening, watching CNN news coverage or some news station watching the news coverage, and they pan out for one of these rescues that they're doing at the time, and there's our apartment building. And you can't see the first floor of the apartment, which is where we lived. And my first thought, which is probably, I don't know if it's a selfish first thought or if it's a childish first thought, my first thought was my duct tape probably didn't hold. (laughs) I had a few more profound thoughts after that moment, but my first thought was I bet that duct tape didn't hold because as the water came in through the windows, I'm sure it rushed right past my poor, my poor duct tape job that I did around the, around the door. Sure enough, at, at that point, there was nothing to go back for because the water sat there for weeks, as you saw on TV and everything. So our friends who lived on the second floor, who went back about six weeks later uh, to check on things to see what they could salvage, I asked them to check on the duct tape, and they said they couldn't find it. So... Uh, it, 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 is, it is what it is. But when you do something and you're forced to leave and you have no way of figuring out did that actually stand up to the effects of what was going on, it's really difficult. And our story this morning that we're reading from First Thessalonians is actually connected to that idea. Because we find out in the book of Acts that Paul went to this place called Thessalonica. He went there and he invested in the people. He worked on, with the people. And then he was forced to leave. He was forced to get out of town because of some uproar that was happening in the area. So he had to leave, and it tore him up because he wanted to know, did the work that I did in Thessalonica, is it actually going to last? Is my duct tape job going to stay there? Are these people going to continue in the faith, or are they going to get bowled over by the effects of the world? Are they just going to give up? That's the situation that's going on here. If you go back in chapter 2 to verse 17, It says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. That phrase there where it says, having been taken away from you, that's a very particular phrase that in the ancient world meant to be orphaned. So there in verse 17, it had the phrase to be orphaned, but it could also be used of parents who were separated from their children, maybe because of a wartime situation, maybe because of something that happened in the family. But it was a very particular phrase that had to do with family members being separated from one another. I know that doesn't seem like a particularly important point, except that earlier in chapter 2, 
We looked at a couple of weeks ago how Paul purposefully used family language when he was talking about the Thessalonians. Back in chapter 2, and I don't have this on the screen, but back in chapter 2 in verse 7 and then later in verse 11, he talks about the way a father and mother would relate to their children. And so when he says in verse 17 that he was taken apart or torn apart from them, He's, he's referencing back this family language to say that he feels like he's been torn away from his family at this point. And then later in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens. What he's saying, when we could endure no longer wondering whether or not our children were staying firm in the faith, when we could take it no more, that phrase up there, endure it no longer, It was a phrase in the ancient world that had to do with how much water a container could hold before it burst. And I guess without being crude, uh, it also was used for a bladder. How much water a bladder could hold before it was going to, when you've ever said, I feel like I'm going to burst, that's the phrase in the ancient world. When we could endure it no longer, we literally felt like we were about to burst, Paul is tied up inside wondering whether or not the people that he had led to faith in Christ, whether or not their faith was actually going to be able to stand up. And he said that we decided that we would be left behind at Athens. Drumroll, please. This is when we get the map and the laser pointer. Oh, no. Where's the laser? There it is. Okay. All right. So ancient world. Here's the Mediterranean Sea right here. Down here is Jerusalem. This is the area where Jesus operated. This is modern-day Israel. Way up in here is the area where Paul was working in this area called Thessalonica. Go to the next uh, map. It kind of comes in. So that's the big circle you saw earlier over here. This is modern-day Turkey called Asia Minor when you read about it in your Bible. So Paul was up here in Thessalonica. He got kicked out of town, and so he went south. And here's modern-day Athens, down here just south of Thessalonica. So he got run out of town. He went down south, and he got to Athens, and he said, I can't take this anymore. I want to know whether or not the Thessalonians are actually sticking with their faith in Jesus or whether they've given it up. And so what he does is he sends Timothy back to check on them, and then Paul moves on to this other little dot here. It's a place called Corinth. In your Bible, you have the letters to the Corinthians, That's where it's located, and Paul was in Corinth when he wrote 1 Thessalonians, the letter that we're reading right now. So he goes down there, he gets to Athens, he says, I'm about to burst, I need to know whether or not their faith stood up, and he sends Timothy back to check on them. You get down there to verse 19 in chapter 2, why is this such a big deal to Paul? Why does he even care whether or not their faith actually held up? Verse 19 of chapter 2, he says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? The reason this is such a big deal for Paul is Paul did not go to Thessalonica and meet these people just to get them to raise their hand during an emotional prayer at the end of the service and to make a decision. He went there because he wanted to see their lives transformed. He was invested in their lives, and it mattered to him that they kept going. 
He didn't need a one-time decision that then passed on. It didn't change their life. Paul wanted to know whether or not their faith had really revolutionized their life, whether it really changed them. And he says that you are our hope. The hope that we have in standing before the Lord is the Lord doesn't care how many buildings I've built. He doesn't care how popular I am 2,000 years from now when people are reading my letters. All Paul cared about is he wanted to know that these people, that their faith was holding strong. And he says in verse 19 that they are his joy. If you ask Paul what gave him the most joy in ministry, it was seeing his spiritual children growing in their faith. Parents, when you look at your family and your life, what gives you the most joy in life? Our answer in keeping with Paul is to see our kids growing in their faith, to know that they are staying strong. I realized in the last few years, and we are at very young ages for playing sports, but when I watch my kids play sports, or I coach their games, or I go to watch my brother coach, I get a hundred times more nervous watching and coaching than I ever did playing. There's something about the fact that when you're playing, you're out there, you're in the middle of the game, you've got some level of control over it. When you're watching your kids, you have no control at that point. All you are is just a ball of nerves, even when they're in first grade, and you're thinking, I, I can't do anything about that, I'm just forced to watch. But it gives you, as a parent, great joy to see your kids succeed, to see your kids do well. Paul feels the same way about these people. They weren't just decisions that checked a spot on a card. They were the joy of his life, the joy of his ministry. He even says at the end of verse 19, he says that you are the, our crown. Certain translations, instead of crown, will say you are our glory. It's the idea of our reputation. Paul's not being selfish or self-centered at this point. He's just recognizing that when he stands before the Lord, all he has to show for his ministry are these people that he's invested his life in. There's an important verse to balance this out with. Romans chapter 15, verses 17 through 18. Listen to what Paul says in here because it'll kind of balance and help you understand what happens in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume. So lest you think Paul is self-centered, make sure you see what's going on here. Therefore, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So the reason Paul can say you are our hope and our joy and our crown or our glory, the reason he can say those things is because he knows that God has done that through him. It wasn't him doing it on his own strength. Lord knows when we look at parenting and grandparenting, that's not something you do on your own strength. It's something that the Lord does through you to make those things happen, to be able to rejoice in those things. And so that's what Paul is referencing. He even goes on in verse 19 at the very end of the phrase. He says, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. A little bit later in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's going to focus a lot on the second coming of Christ. And we're going to talk about that some more as we get closer to Easter. But what Paul is saying is when he stands before the Lord, the thing that he's going to be able to show for his ministry, the thing he's going to be able to talk about is the people he's invested his life in. They are his hope. They are his joy. They are the crown, literally the crown of his ministry. And then it goes on after that because we have to think that one of the things Paul is facing is in the short term. He knows in the long term he's going to be able to present these people before the Lord, but in the short term, 
He doesn't know whether their faith has stuck or not. And you say, well, why is Paul so concerned? Does he think he preached bad sermons when he was with them? Why is he worried about whether or not their faith actually stuck? The reason he's worried is because in the ancient world, which is very familiar to our world, in the ancient world, a religion was supposed to make your life easier. It was supposed to make your life better. If you followed this God, it was going to give this reward. It was going to give this effect in your life. Well, Paul has come to them, and he's spoken to them about Jesus. What did they get as a result of that? Well, they've gotten attacked. Many of them have been kicked out of their family. The man who has come to speak to them was forced to leave town. So make sure you understand why Paul is so concerned at this point. Because in his day, if your religion was good, it made your life easier and better. Paul comes along and preaches about this man named Jesus. They turn to Jesus and believe that he is the Son of God, and all of a sudden, life doesn't get easier. Life, in a lot of ways, gets harder. And so Paul's thinking, oh no, they're going to think they've gone the wrong direction. Life has gotten harder. They're going to think they picked the wrong God because now life is not going for them as well as it was before. And so he has to counter this in some way. So watch what Paul does in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. So Paul couldn't get back to them. He had been kicked out of town. Some people think he's gotten very sick at this point because it said earlier in chapter 2 that Satan hindered us from returning. We don't know exactly what it means about how Satan hindered them from returning, whether it was sickness or whether it was government, opposition, whatever it was, he couldn't go back, but Timothy could go back. So he sends Timothy back to do two things, to strengthen and encourage you in regard to your faith. So Timothy is supposed to do two things. One, he's supposed to make sure that they're on a strong foundation, and two, he's supposed to encourage them to keep going. The interesting thing about those two words that are in red on the screen is several places in the New Testament, those two words actually show up together. So these are two words that are commonly used together. Let me give you a couple of places quickly that you can write down, and then these are going to be up on the screen as well. 2 Thessalonians, so not the book we're looking at right now, but the one right after it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17 Paul says in this letter, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. That word comfort is the same word for encourage that we saw in 1 Thessalonians. I have no idea why the translators decided to go with a different word, but it's the same idea that God would do these two things. He would comfort you and he would, and he would strengthen you. He would make you firm in your faith. Another place it shows up is in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. It says, Paul went strengthening, so there's the word we saw earlier, strengthening the souls of the disciples. This is when Paul is going back to visit the churches that he's established. It says he strengthened the souls of the disciples and then encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And that word tribulations is the key word for making sense of what happens next in the passage we're studying. So if you look back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and you look in verse 3, Paul says the reason he wants Timothy to go there to strengthen and encourage them is so that no one would be disturbed 
by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. So that word disturbed is a word that we're very cautious about using in Oklahoma these days, but it's when your, your foundation starts to shake or something is, is agitated or thrown off center. That's the nature of that word. That Paul was concerned that they were centered on Christ, but something would happen in their life and it would shake them off that foundation. And many of you, if we had a chance right now, you could raise your hand and say, let me tell the younger people in the crowd about my story. Because you're going along, you know that you're a Christian, you know you're trusting the Lord, and then something comes into your life that is very difficult, that causes a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, that's a tribulation. Something comes into your life that's hard, and you can feel that foundation in your life begin to shake. And you're forced to say, is my life centered on the things of the Lord, or is it only centered on the things of the Lord when life is going well? And then when my foundation starts to shake a little bit, when life gets hard, that's when we're forced to say, what is really the foundation of my life? Will I remain trusting in Christ even when these times come? That's exactly what Paul's addressing here. He says, I don't want you to be disturbed by these afflictions. What are the afflictions that they're facing? Well, at this point, many of them have lost their job. Many of them have been kicked out of their families. Many of them have been pushed to the edge of society, not to mention just the realities of living in the world in which we live. So they face these afflictions, and Paul says something interesting at the end of verse 3. He says, For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. What Paul is doing there is he's reminding them, When I came to you, I never told you life would be easy. I never told you that turning to Jesus would make all your problems go away. In fact, I told you it's the opposite, that everyone who wants to live a life of godliness in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself said, in this world, you're going to face many problems. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So Paul reminds them, when you turn to Christ, you were destined to face opposition like this. You were destined to still live in a world where bad things happen. The question is, How do you respond to that? What do you do in light of that? And so that moves us down to verse 4. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. On your notes, at this point, I have two main ideas for us to focus on in the last couple of minutes. Here's the thing that I want you to go home with. And no surprise, if you look at the back of your bulletin, there's two words that are capitalized, and they're words that are important in grammar because you know that you've been cursed with a pastor who really likes the way phrases are put together. But God does two things. He works in us during times of suffering, and he works through us during times of suffering. So what I want you to know today is many of you, and I say this with the utmost gentleness because we're in a church situation where many of you have gone through extremely difficult situations during the last few weeks, the last few months. Your jobs have been affected. Your families have been affected. Loved ones have passed away. It has been a difficult time for many of you. 
And we realize that if it hasn't been a difficult time, we're always concerned that the difficult time is just around the corner. In this world, we are going to face trouble. We are going to face suffering. The question is, what is our foundation? And do we realize that God wants to strengthen us in the midst of those difficulties, and he also wants to work through us to impact others in the midst of those difficulties? So look at verse 5. That's kind of our pattern for the, re- the next couple of minutes as we finish up. But look at verse 5. Paul says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, this is the phrase we've already seen, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear, so Paul was concerned, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul is worried about two things. That the enemy of God, that the tempter would have come in and taken them off their foundation of faith. And Paul is concerned that all of his labor and work there was for nothing. Like he invested in these people and then something bad happened and and they just kind of gave up and went the other direction. These are the two things that Paul is concerned about. And really they're two sides of the same coin. If their faith gave way and they no longer trust in Christ, they weren't going to be involved in spreading the gospel to others. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin. So first, this idea that the tempter would have tempted you. Here's an interesting thing about the New Testament. The word for temptation, in other words, that you're tempted to go the wrong direction, to rebel against God. The word for temptation is the same exact word that is used for a trial that comes in life. So a difficulty that comes in life that God could use to build you up is the same exact word that is used for a temptation that's meant to tear you down. Let me show you a place that this shows up very clearly. The book of James. If you're trying to find James in your Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible, James is just a little bit closer to the end than where we are right now. But in James chapter 1, it says, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials.'" That word trials is connected to the same word for temptation. But but James says, consider it all joy when you encounter trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There are going to be trials that come in life. There are going to be difficulties, but we can consider it all joy because God will use those to build it up to build us up. But that same word trials is the word for temptations, which shows up just a little bit later in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, it says, let no one say when he is tempted. The word tempted, same word for trials. When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. All right, this is a big issue that we have to deal with here in the most concise way we can. What James is saying there is there are going to be difficult things that are going to come in your life. And there are times that God allows those to happen so that you will be built up and strengthened in your faith. But God will never put those things in your path in order to tempt you and draw you away from him. God does not do that. God doesn't set you up for failure. God works in and through your life to build you up, but he does not set you up to fail. He does not set you up to be drawn away from him. And we have to keep those two very clearly distinguished there. 
The answer to this is found in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, and this is on your notes if you want to look at your bulletin um, on the back there. The answer for how we deal with this is given to us by Jesus in what's sometimes called the model prayer or the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, to be on guard, to realize they're going to face trouble, but to pray that God would not lead them into temptation, not allow those things in life that happen to draw them away from God, but that God would deliver them from the evil one. A couple of passages that relate to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. This idea that God will never put you in a situation where the only way out is to fall into sin. That God is there that we will not lead us into temptation, but he will deliver us from the evil one. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Remember in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that Timothy went there to establish them, to strengthen them. This is that same idea. Resist him, standing firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. God's desire is that in times of trouble that we would be strengthened, not that we would be taken off our foundation. So the question is, for us, how do we respond to difficulty? How do we respond to hard times that happen in life? And many of you have faced these in recent days, and the rest of us will face them quickly to come in, in the future. When you face suffering, how should we respond? Let me give you a couple of ideas, a couple of things to be aware of. The first one is to remember that times of suffering and difficulty make us particularly vulnerable to temptations. So times of difficulty and times of suffering make us particularly vulnerable to temptations. We saw this just a second ago in 1 Peter. But here's the point. When something hard happens in your life, you face a challenge with your family, with your job, some sort of tragedy strikes, if we're not careful, we'll face a temptation where we'll get angry with God, and our result of that is we'll say, you know what? I I kind of owe myself a couple of sinful pleasures at this point. God let this happen to me. I'm facing this suffering, and so my response to that is I'm going to give in to certain sinful pleasures because I owe that to myself because I'm going through this difficulty. Now, I want to tread oh so carefully here because we can never know the depth of somebody's hurt unless we're going through it ourselves. But I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen where and just to give you a general example, but one that is true to life, where a dad faced incredible heartache in his life, a very difficult tragedy struck, and his response to that was he gave in to an affair and ultimately ended up splitting the family further. Part of what started that is that affair 
was some way to soothe the pain of life that was happening at the moment. And, and I hope you feel the tension of why I'm trying to be so careful at this point. But what we have to be cautious about is that our response to suffering is not that we give in to temptation, but is that we fight sin all the more because we trust that the Lord is at work in our lives in ways beyond what we can see at the moment. So it's just my caution to you that when you face difficult times in life, be very careful how you respond to those. Trust in the Lord. Don't give in to the ways of the enemy. The second is to remember that when you go through difficult times, oftentimes you can begin to be worn down by those experiences, and it happens under the surface at first, and then something will happen and the top will crack. So here's the, what, the image I'm trying to give you. Difficulty comes in your life, and you look to be a person who's handling it really well. People look at you, and they're like, wow, you are really handling this great. What you want to yell at them is you don't know what's going on down low. You, you don't know what I feel like in my gut. You don't know what I feel like under the surface. And then a few weeks or a few months later, somebody will say something random, and it will crack the top of this veneer that looked good. You had the smile on your face. Everything seemed to be under control. And then you'll find out that down below, everything had eroded. And somebody comes along, and they say something casual, and you blow up at them, not because of what they said, but because of everything that had been wearing on you for the past months had been taking away that foundation. What we have to be careful of when we face these times of suffering is that we don't look good on the surface while underneath everything is falling apart. We've got to have people that we turn to. We have to have people around us. When we were with the ninth and 10th grade guys in Sunday school this morning, one of the things that I wanted them to know is that you need to have a place that you can turn when you're hurting. You can need to have a place that you can turn when it feels like things are falling apart. And the church should be that place. It should be the place that you turn when you're hurting. Except that if we're not careful, people feel strange turning to the church at times like that because they're worried about being judged. They're worried that they have to appear particularly religious. They're worried they have to have everything together. This needs to be a safe place. In Emmaus, we have to create that together. We have to create a culture when someone's life is falling apart, when they're facing difficulty, that this is the first place they want to run, not the last place. And that's not something I can do by myself. It's not something you can do by yourself. We have to do that together to say this is a place that someone can come when they're facing difficulty. One other thing to be aware of in this is that when you are facing difficulty, you don't need simplistic, cheesy answers at those times. What we need more than anything is to look to the cross. As we approach Easter, our response to suffering and our response to difficulty in the world is not to close our eyes. Our responsibility is we look to the cross. This is the season of the cross. From Ash Wednesday leading up to Holy Saturday to celebrate Easter, everything we do is pointed toward the cross. 
And the reason that Paul was so adamant that these believers stay firm in their faith in the midst of suffering was because that was the message that he had preached to them. He preached of a Messiah who came and suffered and then went to glory, not a Messiah who never faced difficulty. And so he wants, to know them, wants them to know that the path to glory leads through suffering, not around it. And when we look to the cross, we will find out that God desires not only to work in us, but he wants to work through us. And we're going to do this last point in about three minutes, because in two weeks, Dr. Kelly is going to be here from OBU, and I found out <laughs> a couple of, uh, couple of days ago that he's going to be preaching on this topic. So lest I look like a fool compared to Dr. Kelly in a couple of weeks, we're just going to spend two minutes on it so I can always say, oh yeah, I just didn't have time to get to that when Dr. Kelly says all the profound things about, about this point. But uh, the idea here is that when God works in your life during a time of suffering, he will also work through your life to spread the gospel. I'd like to point you to one particular passage on this. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. We know from, John's prayer, or from Jesus' prayer that's on your bulletin there from John chapter 17, we know that Jesus' prayer for our life is not that God would take us out of the suffering of the world, but that he would help us to go through it. And here's the way that he does that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, and then look at this phrase, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Here's what those verses are saying very simply. When you go through a hard time in life, God, by his power and by his spirit, will bring comfort into your life. And as a result of that, you're able to turn around and comfort others who are going through afflictions. When somebody's going through a difficult time in life, we always want to be cautious about, I know what you're going through. Generally speaking, that's not the best phrase unless you literally know exactly what they're going through. And that's one of the amazing things about God, how God works in a church. Is if someone is facing a particular difficulty, and you've been there, done that, experienced God's comfort through it, God is able to take your experiences, because he doesn't waste any of our experiences, He's able to take what you've been through, and he's able to use that to comfort others who are going through the same situation. Do not miss, let me just beg you for lack of a better word, do not miss how God wants to use your experiences and your life that he has brought you through in order to comfort and encourage and strengthen others who are going through similar experiences. This is why it's such a big deal to me that Emmaus is a multi-generational church. Because I need people who have gone before me, who have encountered those difficulties, who can look at me and say, hey, I've been there. I've gone through that. Let me tell you about God's goodness. Let me tell you about God's grace and how he's going to lead you through that experience. And you will be reminded of God's grace and those times in your own life. So here's the reality. We're going to face suffering. We're going to face difficulty in life. In those times, God desires to strengthen you in your faith, and God desires to work through you 
so that others would know his goodness and others would know his grace. Let me pray for us as we get ready to end. Father, I know that I'm surrounded this morning by people who are going through some very difficult situations, have been through some very difficult situations. Jesus told us that in this world we would have trouble, but take heart, he's overcome the world. God, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is facing difficulty, but they have never experienced your love or your power or your salvation in their life, God, that they would be drawn to seek you this morning. God, you sent your son to suffer and die for us so that the sufferings of this world would not be the end of the story. God, I pray that if there are those here who are suffering and they don't know where to turn, God, that this would be a place of hope. God, that this would be a safe place that they would be able to be honest about their struggles and that through that they would find peace and hope and strength and joy like they've never known before as they turn to Christ. God, would you continue to work in us and would you continue to work through us for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.